Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wavefarm. Today we're starting the show with the sounds of daybreak, as uh, broadcast from Stave Hill Ecological Park in London, England, this past Saturday. These sounds from Stave Hill Ecological Park in the south of London were transmitted during the 10th anniversary Reveille broadcast as uh, daybreak gave way to morning at Stave Hill on uh, May 6th. The Reveille broadcast uh, traced the arrival of daybreak uh, westward uh, for returning to there the following morning. The sounds of daybreak were mixed for a 24-hour radio and internet audio transmission by the Reveille Collective, courtesy of audio live streams by volunteers, artists, and researchers from time zone to time zone. For today's edition of Making Waves, we'll listen to sounds from the Reveille broadcast in uh, parallel to a uh, discussion that I recorded with the founders of Reveille, Don Scarf, Maria Paparalaki, and Grant Smith.
how did Reve begin? How is uh, this has been going on for ten years? Uh, uh, getting up in the early hours and staying up for twenty-four hours to hear uh, this incredible cycle of uh, dawn recordings across the world. Um, how did that? How did that idea start? And and uh, what were the first actions to make that possible? I, I mean, I could start off on that. I mean, it, it felt like it feels like it comes from a very simple thing, uh, um, which was s some of us were were going out and listening um, early in the morning, and and I think that basically came out of sort of um, informal education stuff. We, I, I remember those early uh, visits to nature reserves at crazy hours of the of, of the day uh, with small children and stuff, and uh, it made a big impression on all of us. For maybe for the reasons that are that are known to field recorders, because because uh, human sounds are relatively low, urban the urban sounds uh, can be can be um, shifted. The different different elements of the soundscape are shifted at that time. But also just because your ear, maybe your ears are fresh and and something there's something there's just something out of the ordinary about that time for for most of us, unless we're I don't know bakers or you know shift workers of a certain kind. And and I think it was I I think that the idea of the of the broadcast came from the sense of the that, that there's this very ephemeral moment that is quite sort of significant feels significant and poignant and then and then goes so that as it passes as the as the dawn as the dawn chorus sort of moves on it happens fairly quickly um, you you kind of enter the, the sort of more muddy uh, realities of the day but you're aware that that moment is continuing somewhere to the to the west. So there was some, there's something intriguing about the tension between that very uh, ephemeral quality and the fact that it continues, that it's a sort of continual improvisation that never, that never repeats itself. So, so I think the idea was to sort of respond to that in some way. And what do you feel you learned from exploring the, uh, and hearing this, these uh, Don Chorus soundscapes from other parts of the world, places that you're not familiar with? Or, or never been to before? I mean, it's hard to say because there's so many that we've uh, listened to, but... Um, I mean, just to sort of uh, generalize, I suppose it's this sense, like Grant mentioned, of a wave that, um, you know, you can, if you're lucky, you can detect the very early parts of it, and then it sort of gradually builds and it in every place it has a different character but it's still the thing that connects everything is this sense of a wave um and, and um yeah i guess that's the whole point of reveille it tries to chase this catch this wave as it um then travels on um yeah and maybe just just again to go back to the uh origins of it because i think we all maybe had slightly different inroads to starting to listen to the daybreak um I mean, for me, it really was just a sense, it sounds really simple, but the, the night was finally over because sometimes if you're sleeping outside, especially if it's an unfamiliar place, you know, the night can seem very long. And um, yeah, when the birds first start singing, it really is a sign that the light is coming back again. And uh, that's quite a sort of powerful thing and it can be sort of quite a celebratory thing. Um, yeah, so I guess for me, it, it, was, it was this kind of like long durations of the night followed by a kind of eruption in the morning, which meant that my 
stress of being in the dark was finally uh, over. So yeah, and it's it's really hard to sort of summarize all these amazing other choruses that we've heard remotely over the years. Um, just some of them, you know, each one is really unique, and um, some can be quite mundane, but you know, usually they have some amazing quality of their own. Um, yeah, and often, I mean, for example, I'm not that great at identifying different bird calls, but um, I can remember I can remember specific incidences of um, you know very mysterious, characterful birds singing in a, in a certain part of the world, and then going with them. Uh, finding out about them later, these kind of mysterious objects that, um, you know, sometimes they don't even sound like animals <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, so there's this kind of feeling of being captivated by things that you don't really know or understand most of the time. <laughs> To me, the interesting thing, after having done that for so many years, um, is uh, because this is actually a collective work. It's not us. I mean, we are mixing things, but be behind the mixing is a, you know, a, a list of stepping stones that other people have to go through in order to be able to share these sounds with us. So. For me, I'm always amazed by um, the amount of commitment uh, our collaborators have showed over the years to go to an unusual places, to organize things with other people. I, I, would, be, I would say that apart from the uh, sonic content, which is always something that uh, leaves us uh, wondering, uh, learning new things, is the social aspect of this project which always amazes me. I mean, especially this year, we had a big crisis. We were almost uh, ready to cancel the broadcast because the main server that we used uh, has started uh, not responding, meaning that many of the streams that have been prepared wouldn't be able to be accessed. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we took the decision to move forward, to go back to the basics, uh, to where we started, where we only had a few streams. Huh? When when the first survey started, we didn't have, you know, 300 streams. We had less, m way less than that. So we decided to go back to basics uh, and um, basically share uh, with our streamers new ways of accessing and new ways of streaming that would that that would basically demand from them to learn new methods to try. New, new platforms and new applications. And uh, at the end, many people re responded 
and many people wanted stayed stay committed stayed committed to the project and uh, carried on uh, sharing their streams so for me one of the main things that uh, always leaves me uh, amazed is the, the commitment that people show uh, for this project and um, how uh, fragile this project is. It's not, you know, a, a big industry uh, production. It's a very fragile, ephemeral community, you know, with a, with a deep sense of what community is, a uh, community-led project. And... Uh, after so many years, after 10 years, I think it's it's uh, its strongest, uh, let's say, aspect is that it stays uh, it stays um, a, a true to these values. And uh, and uh, I don't know what happen will happen to this project in the future, but so far I think has uh, has allowed to many people to discover all these different things that we are. Uh, that we are talking about is not something which is it's about revealing which is awakening but also revealing and i think uh, has been a revealing process for many people not only us three but all the people who over the years who who wanted to be part of it so it's uh, yeah it's it's a, it's it's something that always amazes me every year i'm very uh, looking forward to all these contributions and uh, what happens I cannot. I only anticipate. I cannot really uh, know exactly what will happen, <laughs> which is always uh, a great thing to work with. So that touches on, I guess, the volunteer aspect of Reve is that it it is really driven by uh, people diving in as uh, out of their own will and desire. And what are the in terms of how people report back to you? What is their uh, uh, what is the fulfillment for them? Do you feel that like why why do they go through the trouble? Why do they take the sacrifices? What how uh, what is the the uh, the end result for the people that are providing these streams to the broadcast? I mean, again, I think it's it's quite hard to summarize because there's so many different people, but um, for many of them, it, it starts with an attachment to a place. You know, usually it's either somewhere that's um, in a immediate neighborhood that they've grown attached to or they have a sort of impulse to go and explore um, a bit further afield and it's more of a sort of adventure for them to go out and discover um, a location so perhaps they're two of the main motivations to kind of want to share the sounds of a particular place um, I mean, undoubtedly some people are also quite into the tech the DIY nature of the tech and that sort of learning process is a draw for them. Um, and, it, you know, every year we have a new lot of people who come along who, um, yeah, are just more curious about the process and wanting to sort of discover not only streaming, but um, hopefully <laughs> listening to people as well, you know, being part of this community that Maria talks about. So, um, yeah, there's some of the motivations I can think of. I don't know, perhaps other people have recollections different people join this project for different reasons as uh, Don said I think one of the main drivers or drives perhaps 
to join because as you said uh, Darren it is uh, it is sort of volunteering it's a, it's they do it voluntarily you know they don't expect uh, something in exchange something that is uh, it has a value you know the value is of a different kind it's not monetary it's it's the value of wanting to share uh, these uh, these places uh, uh, their neighborhoods or maybe some special places uh, uh, far away or you know things places that they think they're acoustically uh, uh, you know uh, important or interesting uh, or places that are basically different at that time of the day as opposed to the rest of the day um, so it's it varies but I think uh, the the main uh, drive here is to to be part of the collective no matter what you know sharing and sharing uh, with the people all the other people who are streaming but the listen also the listeners the people who might be present uh, and listening from the different net radio stations but also the li- the, pe- the people who might be camping and be part of a sound camp event elsewhere you know it is a it is a, a very complex network of of listening points that is created every year and uh, this this on its own, it's uh, it's uh, the main the main incentive for wanting to share and to be heard and to and to listen as well. Um, uh, now, different people have different backgrounds. We have like this uh, uh, very um, technologically advanced field recordists. We also had uh, people who had nothing, no experience. Uh, we like this this vari- variety of of contributions. We don't aim only for the hi-fi. We stand somewhere in the middle, and we also are interested to see uh, how the non-human and the human how they correlate, how they you know how they, they 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 are together, and how they can be listened together in the broadcast. Um, so uh, I think it's uh, it's it's a plural reply to this question, and I think the main the main drive is uh, wanting to be part of of that community. I guess it's also to make something together because um, that there is there is a, in some kind of um, simple sense it is a kind of a public artwork. We, we've talked a bit about thinking about Reve as a as a kind of collective publishing act because of course the the earth turns um, on its own um, non-humans do their extraordinary performances um, largely for their own purposes um, kind of unremittingly you know with no pay um, so but there's something about maybe there's something about the the, the artistic um, Machinery, you know, that kind of tries to respond to the machine, to the terrestrial machinery, and and, and sort of shift things from this, like 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 Maria says, from from the, like that little place that you know about that sound, the, the, which is kind of amazing. It, it kind of moves that into the public domain in some ways. It's this sharing action. But I guess in order for that to happen, there's there is a sort of collective artistic. It is art purpose. You know, it's, it's that surplus that art does that is unpaid. I mean, whether you're paid or not, the thing that you could be argued, the thing that you do that makes it, um, that's that extra thing that you cannot compensate people for. You know, that is, 
that is um yeah the surplus so it feels like it feels like there's something about about wanting people wanting to be part of that like like um having responsibility for, for that little segment that we take responsibility for to to provide and then and, and then it becomes more than the you know more than the sum of its parts as it were. Uh, while the broadcast is taking place, I mean, some of you have referenced uh, uh, camping and and that, and the origins of the project, I guess, are also in a in a kind of what you call a sound camp, which I guess has uh, more than the broadcast uh, taking place. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us some idea for those of us uh, that are not there with you in England, uh, what uh, what is taking place behind the scenes, and and uh, what kinds kinds of activities happen through through that 24 hours. Again, the, the idea of the sound camp came out of, a, again, a simple impulse to, um, yeah, to a mechanic of like needing to, needing to be outside at very, very early. And how would you, how would you go about being, being there? And one way was to, was to, was to stay out overnight somewhere, somewhere surprising in our case. So the, the place where the, the sort of hub what is still sort of the hub in, in some senses um, at Stave Hill Ecological Park in South London um, is a, a little um, sort of scruffy piece of ground on uh, former wet docks that uh, was created in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties and is now a, a hot so-called biodiversity hotspot in the in the inner city which is an important stopover point for migrating birds and also supports a kind of quite a lot of sort of diverse population of um, insects and flora and, and and so forth so so I I, I, some, I I think some sometimes you can think of the broadcast as being a gloss on these places like this place has been there long before the broadcast it's been there since since the 80s and in a way the broadcast is is kind of about that so the sound camp sets up there as a way of kind of giving attention to that place. And I guess it's one of a couple of dozen sound camps that happen in other places, which I suppose are mo similarly motivated, um, wanting to be somewhere. The, some of them have recurred now for quite a long time. The Vogelklang sound camp in the Black Forest, um, it's been there for quite a long time. And then it becomes a gathering that people go to, um, a social event, as Maria says. But we could probably describe some of the actual things that happen. Uh, there would be a daybreak walk. I mean, that's one of the um, recurring features of our sound camp and many of the other sound camps. Um, so at Stave Hill, we'd invite uh, usually a local expert, sometimes a more of a regional expert, <laughs> to come and um, yeah, lead groups of people around, groups of campers around early in the morning. Um, there's, we try to provide food because even though it's in central London, it's still a bit off the beaten track, surprisingly. Um, and also with sleeping out all night, people get sort of, um, maybe more hungry than they <laughs> would do normally. So, um, yeah, food is, is kind of essential uh, and a way of people getting together and, um, you know, just getting along as well around the food. Um, and then, you know, it depends on the year we want to talk about, but um, I guess the, there's a sort of gradual impulse to increase the amount of art activities on site. So there'd always be um, 
an idea that we could do some making, like make uh, stream boxes that can send their own stream, or make uh, you know local wildlife habitats, maybe bug hotels, something like this. Um, as well as the daybreak walk, they would also be um, on the other side of it, on this after uh, sunset or around then. Uh, there'd be a, a bat walk too, which has always been very popular um, because there's um, you know, a local community of bats and uh, lots of insects for them to eat. So it's quite a reliable feature. Uh, and, and obviously another way of listening then because you're using yet another device that will help you tune into a, an unheard, usually unheard kind of range. So people enjoy exploring that. Um, and, and then there'd be performances, sometimes local, sometimes remote, um, you know, sometimes very deeply engaged with the sounds and, and the history of the site and sometimes just an idea from somewhere else that's been, um, you know, brought in, but then hopefully tuned as well to that particular set of people who are there um, of the weekend. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really quite a range of artists that we've had over the years, actually. Um, from performance artists to installation artists to, um, you know, people who do sort of DIY tech. Um, yeah, so it actually keeps us quite occupied, this program at Stave Hill. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of become quite a feature of the event, actually. And it is sometimes a struggle to <laughs> manage Reveille, which in itself is quite an ambitious uh, endeavor like alongside this, these on-site activities, but it, I think it kind of requires requires it in a way. Maybe one 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 element of the London Sound Camp over the past years that kind of came, I, I guess, there was more completed this year than before is this uh, this portable auditorium called Pitch that was made as a collaboration between the sound artist Michael Spears and the architects practice Public Works. And it's been developed through a sort of iterative process over now, we're going back through into the pandemic. And um, I think the impulse behind Pitch was to build uh, something that went beyond the the tent. So we always used to play, we always used to play Reveille out in a tent and we uh, normally a bell tent, so a kind of a canvas tent. And what we liked about that was that it's a acoustically porous structure. So while you listen to the sounds, the remote sounds make their way around the, the earth, you also become more rather than less aware of the sounds around you. Um, and they kind of, they kind of mix in, 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 in ways that are difficult to anticipate and they change because, because say, uh, different times the, the local sounds go are more or less prominent and you get this kind of interesting, um, um, kind of overlay and such. So, so pitch was a kind of attempt to sort of go maybe beyond that permeability. And this year, I, I had a chance to listen to it for the first time since it's been it's been on tour. It was it was built, one iteration was built in London, then it went to Cumbria with Full of Noises, uh, with another build, another community group, and then it went down to Aix-en-Provence for a further um, sort of development. And then it's it's come back to its starting point, and now it's this quite considered and um, in some ways a kind of rough but refined structure where the uh, the speakers uh, are integrated into the in, into taut uh, canvas on the in in the in the panels of the of the structure that's 
fairly small, and the, and panels that can be open and closed uh, in response to whether whether you want it to be more contained or more open to its to its surroundings, and it creates a very uh, extraordinary um, listening experience, which is difficult to characterize. It's 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 not a it's not a stereo system, so it does not. Um, it does not create a kind of um, perspectival sense of sound. At the same time, it is—it's definitely not a sort of immersive listening experience because the the um, the different planes of the structure are all broken up. So I think of it as a sort of critical listening space in which your um, your your location and the sense of the space, the, the sonic spaces that are being evoked within it, are always a little bit unstable. And um, I think that's been an attempt maybe to respond at the end of the signal chain to the diversity of the beginning of the signal chain, which is, which is kind of imagining sounds coming from all kinds of different sound producing organs. So not just, um, not just that sort of double pipe of the, of, of the avian syrinx, but also um, amphibians and weather and uh, all kinds of sounding vibrating materials many of which as Dawn says we, we cannot we cannot actually identify but that um, that kind of that have this kind of compelling uh, quality and so that somehow doesn't feel like it should be uh, shut back down at the end into a, into two genelecs you know so it's it's a sense of, of, of maybe trying to come up with it like an ecological sound system and it's funny, yeah, it does actually have its own its own preferences as well as a system, as we noticed sitting in there for a while this time around. Um, you know, it's funny, Maria's voice was actually causing a bit of extra vibration in a way that none of the other voice, none of the other elements coming through were. So particularly, like, seemed to respond, the, ca the canvas at least, seemed to um, have some uh, feeling about Maria. And, and the rest of it um, was coming through sort of more or less uh, in high higher fidelity so that was kind of interesting but um, yeah and I guess initially we we thought about it we went through various explorations of what this sound tent could be thinking about it as a sort of listening laboratory and some other ideas but yeah essentially I think we settled on it being a sort of uh, somehow a, sh a shelter for the sounds of the broadcasts um, and I think it does it does do that so well even in the rain as we had this year <laughs> it was holding up quite well to that so I think I, because I also had the chance to experience it myself, uh, of course, I couldn't tell about my voice because I was there. <laughs> I couldn't be in two places at once. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the system, the, the system is that it's using transducer speakers, so it's all about vibration and how it travels over the panels. Uh, it does give you um, uh, the sense of you lose the uh, let's say where the uh, the main focus is there's no focus there's no uh, center uh, let's say I, I cannot remember the word now i'm too tired um it's so dispersed the sound uh, that it really doesn't matter that the, the directionality of of uh, the uh, of, of the sound is dispersed in the space in the panels, and I think that's that's something that uh, kind of echoes what Don and, and Grant said, uh, as I said previously. It's uh, it kind of like uh, in a way uh, behaves depending on where it is set up. It kind of like gets acclimatized 
to the environment in which it is installed. Um, it would be interesting to experience it with different panel set settings, like closer or more wide, and, and see how that um, how that experience changes. But I think it's it's very successful in doing exactly that of basically diluting the the the, the, the main source in in the environment. So this element of porosity that we are all interested in at the end of the day, the fidelity that we talk about, uh, is, is becoming something less important, I think. Uh, and the porosity becomes more important in the listening experience. And how um, this, uh, this, let's say, attempt to listen, but not demystify, to listen in mysteriously. <laughs> becomes um, you know the main the main thing the main experience um, for us at least uh, in in that particular um, um, setting in the, in the pitch so it's it's a great addition to the project and um, uh, it would be interesting to see it traveling in other places in the future I wanted to uh talk about the context of it taking place the first weekend of May every year and uh, uh, I believe that's also Don Chorus, International Don Chorus Day falls in there um, and I uh, wanted to know the more about the relationship of Reve to that uh, that occasion uh, but um, because I think Reve is opens up to many more eventualities that take place at Don um, than just um, than just the sound making of, of birds. Um, I, I'm, I'm not too. Sh I'm I'm never quite sure what the relation is to Dawn Chorus Day or International Dawn Chorus Day. Uh, when we when we proposed the project, we 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 linked. We sort of basically um, made it coincide with International Dawn Chorus Day because it seemed to make sense. Uh, I guess it coincides to a time in some parts of of the world. Um, uh, certainly in in in, um, in North, northern europe when when it's spring and so that there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of bird song is quite intense and buried uh because of this combination of resident birds and migrants uh, um, all, all sort of singing quite quite volubly uh and and dawn international dawn chorus day came from a, a, a an event that's quite I don't know. It seems kind of pleasing, and also sort of it, it, it suit kind of it's, it's on our kind of scale, right? So I think it was it was um, it was it was somebody's birthday, and um, and they decided to to invite people to meet them at, at dawn on their birthday at this at this wetland, um, this bog outside Birmingham where there was a wildlife trust, and uh, and then it sort of became a became an annual event, but quite a. Uh, quite an un, uh, unpromoted event you know it kind of uh, ticks along and and sometimes it doesn't seem to have much organized presence and sometimes it kind of comes together and does a little bit more the it's a, it's a project of the wildlife um, the wildlife trust of Birmingham and the black country and the wildlife trusts are famously quite autonomous they don't always um, get herded together under their you know head of comms who I think is based in Newcastle or something so it, it's it's kind of kind of a dispersed project so we, we we just then also become part of this of this slightly unresolved and dispersed network 
but there is quite a lot going on. I mean, people do go on. There are other people doing uh, dawn course walks and meeting around this event of whom we have no knowledge and they have no knowledge of us. And so there is a kind of a there is a kind of consensus about the about the day being significant in some way. But it it is it does point to a sort of um, it does point certainly to Eurocentric and um, just say that aspect of the project. It's it's relatively quiet in Australasia, for instance, at that time of year. With Reve being 10 years now, I mean, you've alluded to some of the evolutions like the pitch listening uh, uh, structure, uh, but what are some of the other discoveries and, and uh, ways of hearing the Don Chorus that have evolved in your minds and, and uh, the engagement of the public and things that, that, are, that are different now than they were 10 years ago or when you began? I will... Uh take the opportunity and say that uh, the pandemic uh, has changed the, let's say, uh, I think it was Revage 7, the, f the one, the first one that we did during the pandemic. For me, Revage 7 was perhaps the most successful one because of the pandemic. Um, because people were ready to uh, appreciate uh, the essence of the project. We were all locked down. We were all uh, in our flats and houses, uh, separated from each other, uh, heavily uh, uh, relying on uh, the internet in order to entertain, to communicate, to stay, uh, you know, uh, linked to people and environments and social relations. Uh, so um, that was a highlight, a milestone event that Reveille 7. Uh, it was um, a year where people uh, were really eager and really looking forward more than anything else to, to listen and be part of, of the project. Um, so that was the revelation. That in, in that in that one uh, iteration, uh, I think many of the things that we are now discussing were highlighted. Why people like and love and support and be part of Reve? Why Reve is um, it's a project that uh, it's it's a collaborative artwork that um, you know um, is heavily. 
um, heavily relies on uh, on people's own sensitivities and and listening, let's say, particularities, and why uh, it's something that is open and generous to people in many ways. Uh, it 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 gives back to people, I think, as 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 a as a as a project. Uh, it gives back to people uh, um, many things that we cannot really evaluate. Uh, objectively, uh, it, is a, it is more like on the subjective t type of, <laughs> of evaluation and of, of, uh, of uh, understanding. But um, through that one iteration of, of, of Reveille, uh, many of these little things that we are discussing beca became more, uh, uh, more uh, let's say, you know, they came to the foreground and we became more aware of them. Uh, personally, I'll talk about myself. I'm not sure if Don and Grant share the same experience. Well, I'm just thinking about the sort of evolution and, you know, how it started off with um, mainly a camp in London and a few, you know, happenings elsewhere, but not very pronounced. And then, you know, maybe a couple of years in, we started developing these ideas of satellite camps that would that we would help to support and, um, you know, share programming between sites. Um, so I think, just as an example, you know, each time we would think about how this network is functioning and ways of looping back um, this activity of sort of, you know, going out, streaming, verifying, can I be heard somewhere else? Um, what, what is the experience of this listening in another place? Um, so to pick up again on what happened during the pandemic, because there was no way of people sort of gathering on site um, we picked up on this idea of an IRC chat that we would build into um, what we called the platform, which again was another initiative for this um, lockdown period. Uh, so a, a, a way of kind of trying to showcase the variation of streams and, and the flow in a way that we hadn't quite managed before. So it's like a sort of dynamic um, graphic element to the site that sort of moves along with the broadcast and coupled that with this live IRC very basic internet relay chat function, um, which just enabled um, actually some sometimes the broadcasters to communicate directly with the streamers. Uh, so we'd figure out you know sort of why someone suddenly couldn't plug in their phone at a certain time and now they were suddenly back on, or someone else who was huddling under a tree with an umbrella because it was raining, trying desperately to you know stop their all their equipment getting wet, um, and then also quite intimate moments. In, in the middle of the night for us in the UK, at least, um, listening to places in India and trying to figure out, you know, what these kind of various commotions were. Um, yeah, and, and I think just this feeling that people could, would stay there in this, what we call a listening room, you know, the digital space that we've made um, to exchange thoughts about the streams. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say, you know, over the years, just generally every time we come to think about it again, it's just wondering how these different networks are working, um, how different people can be put into contact, um, where we can share our thoughts about what's going on and what we're doing and um, yeah. I mean I think I would add um, maybe maybe the experience with the, the, the broadcast during the during the pandemic um, restrictions 
um, what it, what it kind of, it, I, I agree that it was a very it was a very it, um, it was quite intense uh, sort of aesthetically intense uh, and socially intense experience. I think it's less. I think there's a more op maybe there's a more open conversation about what that you know what happens next. So certainly for me, um, for me the implications of of, of that experience and uh, but the way that sort of links into uh, um, it, yeah to the to next stages for the broadcast is unresolved. So for instance, one of the, one of the reasons that the that the the sound worlds were so vivid at that time was because aircraft noise was very much reduced, for instance. And I think uh, a lot of those, a, a lot of us who've been through that kind of unique experience of, of the pandemic uh, have are kind of dismayed and um, uh, considering how to proceed, you know, as, as, as the sort of resumption of business as usual or even intensified forms of of business as usual kind of take place. So, so if I think for some of us, the learning about about the possibilities of distributed networks and and thinking ecologically about about transmission also kind of points in the direction of what other kinds of media we need to make um, in order to kind of support new kinds of of um, of actions um, outside the outside the mainstream. And maybe that has to do. Maybe that that slightly links to our experiences with a parallel project called As If Radio that we did um, alongside uh, COP26 in Glasgow, which was which was an attempt to 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 relay um, sounds of, of protest essentially in real time, and felt like it was a kind of, in some way that we don't yet understand, it was probably an important companion piece to to to, to reveal. Um, so that this moment of, of of kind of listening to environmental sounds, which has has been has been, uh, and on the other hand, kind of environmental protest. You know, how do those things actually come together in the world? Um, is a question I think. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, is there anything else uh, that anyone wishes to add that we uh, overlooked? I don't think we mentioned the acoustic commons or, or any of the other partners. I don't know if we need to do that. Uh, that'd be good. So what is the acoustic commons? So again, this is something that came out of Reveille and the networks that Reveille helped to generate. So all of the people participating in that uh, project um, came together through, through Reveille. So it's Soundcamp um, and uh, Locusonus who provide the streaming server for the broadcast and um, Zona, who Maria helped to bring on board, who, who were sort of operating. Um, I think they were doing sound camps as well, weren't they, Maria, before they, they came on board for the Acoustic Commons, um, and certainly then helped to provide a whole stream of remote um, performances that we brought in to, for audiences to share in London. Uh, then we had Full of Noises up in Barrow in England, who um, were one of the early adopters of the sound camp, um, satellite sound camp idea, um, and helped to actually lead the Acoustic Commons project. And have I forgotten anyone obvious? Or I think that they're the main partners. There was obviously um, partners in Greece as well that Maria was helping to coordinate. Uh, different levels of partners, I guess, because there were the ones I've just mentioned who were involved in project work and then 
people that's slight removed, like Simon Forrest in uh, Japan, who'd been running their own live stream project since the early 90s, streaming from um, largely forests um, and places of ecological interest in Japan. And they were more sort of people to, I guess, look to for inspiration for the projects. Um, yeah, there's, so there's different levels of participation in, in the project itself. And um, yeah, you could have a look at our website that we made for that, which lists the various meetups and um, outcomes of the project. Yeah, so just I guess I guess those things came together as part of a three-year small cooperation project between between these different organisations that was supported by the Creative Europe program of the European Commission that was significant for all of us in terms of developing capacity and communication and tech and participatory digital tools and so forth to kind of widen and and um, to widen the network and make it more stable and I guess looking towards an, an, oh, another uh, stage of that maybe maybe there's the possibility to involve more people uh, more, and, and, and address some of the limitations of the project with its uh, its tendency to reproduce um, uh, colonial uh, forms of, um, of technology distribution and to some extent um, asymmetrical patterns of listening with people in some places listening more to people in other places which are kind of um, ongoing uh, things that require you know like active critical engagement probably. And there's also maybe it's worth also saying that acoustic commons is also kind of an idea. It's a what we call a sticky concept. And there's um, uh, we've 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 worked closely with Ella Feiner and uh, the group that she convenes called the Acoustic Commons Study Group, who use the live streams partly as a way to think through the implications of exchanging sounds of, of, um, of putting sounds into the public domain. And there's a book by Ella Feiner called. The Acoustic Commons and the Wildlife of Sound, uh, forthcoming at Errant Bodies Press. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, how about uh, more participation beyond Europe uh, and the eastern part of North America? What are some of the solutions for that? Well, I mean, th I think that I guess the main solution is to build. Um, Incredible um, uh, partnerships with other organisations on a, on, a, on a collegiate basis, and uh, we, we have worked really hard at that. And we've also we've also distributed this year a lot of devices to sort of catalyse those partnerships. And um, I guess one of the one of the um, one of the failures of the of the recent uh, iteration of the broadcast was the fact that most of those sounds were not present in the broadcast because of technical failures that were beyond our control. So I think that reminds us, as, as was said earlier on, you know, that this is a, it's a fragile project. It's, um, it isn't a project that is able to own and build infrastructures. It's always a project that has to, to work opportunistically with existing infrastructures. And we're kind of going away and thinking on the back of those the re recent experiences about how we maybe can think in a more a creative way about the shape of the, the technical form of the networks themselves with more a more um, a more sort of distributed um, 
more distributed network of servers and more peer-to-peer more -peer, uh, connections and more actually going back to some old-school radio ways of being, of being in contact. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we're never going to be able to fix um, certain things, you know, there's always going to be imbalances and um, especially those vast stretches of ocean that we're just never going to be able to... I mean, we have fantasized about sending people out on boats or whatever and, uh, many times and, and not, not uh, gone ahead with that for various reasons, but um, yeah, I think it's important to make sure that we get the language of the project right um, to reflect that we know there are always going to be issues and but we are sort of trying to reach out um, partly because it's just interesting to listen to places that we haven't managed to before and, and you know the whole impulse of the project is to this kind of idea what does it sound like somewhere else um, yeah um, but maybe we, we've learned to live with the oceans I think I quite like that downtime yeah is it possible for a you know for there to be a fall reveal or something that uh, that brings the uh, the Austral Asian soundscape into the foreground? Are there partners that could arise to uh, facilitate that emphasis? Yeah, it seems like it seems like the other ways of, of, of doing the seasons and and maybe also when we were talking here the other night about an an, an evening you know nighttime. Um, a nighttime version, in, you know, might be very nice. Um, I think there are many, um, yeah, many possibilities. But I, I, I do also think that the, the shapes of the of the project are are very important. So, like, I, I agree, of course, Dawn, that, um, like you said, you know, like we like to listen to other things, but it is important who who we is and the directions of the listening uh, that are happening. And so the, the more that those, those networks of listening can be uh, happening in, 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 in different directions, so, so, that, re so that, that the network is increasingly decentered, um, the more, uh, the, the, the richer and the more, um, the more viable I think the project will ultimately be. And we, we've taken steps to do that through, um, through inviting uh, people to mix the project from other other places which has been and Darren you've been involved in that and that, that feels like a very significant direction but I think underneath uh, having a sort of critical relation to the actual to the actual shapes of the of the of the um, of the fiber networks and such that we all that we ultimately kind of rely on is, is an important and, and the kind of energy usage usage and data usage of, of, of the project will, will kind of add, add a dimension to it going forward. Thanks everyone for your time and uh and sh sharing and i know that you're in the process of recovery and uh getting back <laughs> to, to normal life again um but uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, to share you know the uh, the world behind Reveille and uh, the sound camps and uh, and and we hope that that there's uh uh 10 or more years and uh, and that uh, the uh, the question of of uh, evolution will continue to be ever expanding well likewise i mean thank you very much to you and and and, and nasa for being involved now you know over, over many years and and these kind of long detailed broadcasts from this roost which is itself a very significant kind of little mode in the project so thank you thank you equally yeah